So, Jay, is Jamie Braddock still around? That is an interesting question, Miles. Oh, that's never good to hear. It's kind of inevitable, though. I mean, in addition to the usual revolving doors of death and dimensional exile in superhero comics, we're talking about a reality warper here. The standard rules rarely apply. But he did die, right? I'm pretty sure I remember Captain Britain killing him. Although that was really Psylocke. Captain Britain killed Psylocke? Psylocke was controlling Captain Britain when he killed Jamie. Oh, so he is dead. Possibly, but not from that. What happened? Black Widow stabbed him. Oh, that's an awfully mundane way for Jamie Braddock to die. He had just attacked her with a spectral snake. Ah, that's more like it. And some possessed schoolchildren. He's fairly consistent, at least. Why was he after Black Widow, though? Uh, he wanted the Infinity Stone she had. Infinity Stone? I didn't know she was in the Illuminati. She's not. Then how'd she get an Infinity Stone? Wolverine left it in her toilet. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 268 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to Excalibur, to this strange, strange era of Excalibur. Yeah, this is an odd and liminal era of Excalibur, and one that's going to last for a pretty long time. The team's lineup has been in significant flux for a while, and while it's still got the majority of its original members, it's not really a, it doesn't really feel like a team in the sense that it has. I agree, yeah. I mean, it almost feels like an X-Men Leftovers book in some ways. Like, we have Professor Xavier and Moira McTaggart researching the legacy virus on Muir Isle, where the team is based out of. We have all this phalanx stuff coming in in the form of Douglock. Well, Professor X and Moira aren't members of the team. They're just based out of the same headquarters, so they tend to show up inside stories in the same book. I'm just saying, if you mostly appear in a book called Excalibur and you rival the actual team member's page count, you may not be a member of the team, but you're certainly a member of the book. Well, right, they're, they're part of the, the book's character roster, but not the team's, which is what I was talking about. Sorry. Okay, well, there you go. Although I gotta say, this era, we're progressing through it at a decent clip, and Warren Ellis isn't all that far away, and I'm really looking forward to that run. Yeah, I have mixed feelings in terms of whether I like Ellis's run and what I do and don't like about it, but it's definitely interesting, and it's definitely a significant change from the book after a long period, which is what we're in right now, that feels like a lot of treading water. Excalibur remains Britain's premier superhero team, and like we've been talking about, they've been through some changes lately. Right. Immediately after Scott and Jean's wedding in, in X-Men, Rachel Summers, the Phoenix, dove into the time stream to trade places with the time-lost Captain Britain, who came back with a shiny new costume and a shiny new mullet. He's also got a new name. Now he is Britannic, for reasons that nobody can entirely pin down. He's also still very much Brian Braddock, though, which means that his twin sister is still the X-Man Psylocke, and his brother is still the currently comatose reality warper, Jamie. Also from the original team, we've still got former X-Men Nightcrawler and Shadowcat. And we also have OG Excalibur member Megan, now with new shiny elemental powers. Also running with the team currently is a newer member... Um, who, who I guess is an official member now, although I hadn't really realized that until the material that we're covering here. That is Day Tripper, um, Amanda Sefton, Nightcrawler's kind of foster sister, kind of girlfriend, definitely girlfriend, um, who is a sorceress. These days, Excalibur is based out of Muir Isle off the coast of Scotland, where, as we mentioned earlier, Professor Xavier and Dr. Moyer McTaggart have been working night and day to cure the mutant-targeting AIDS allegory, the Legacy Virus. In which process, Moira has, at least apparently in this era, become the first human, the first non-mutant, infected with it. Yeah, that whole thing. Anyway, the team's newest companion is Douglock, a cybernetic reconstruction of dead new mutant Cypher, Shadowcat's closest non-Iliana friend from back in the day. How much of Cypher 
there actually is in Duglock, how much of either Doug or Warlock there is in Duglock, remains mysterious. Whether he's something that the Phalanx constructed that gained consciousness, or whether he's actually parts of the consciousnesses of the dead Cypher and Warlock, are things that are going to be explored later on. For now, no one's quite sure, and that's the source of a lot of tension. Yeah, Kitty's pretty pissed at what she sees as a soulless robot impersonating her dead buddy. I kind of want to go into a little more depth on that, because that is what this looks like. And I think it's really important to the character of Doug Locke that his form isn't one he chose deliberately. It's not one he picked. It's what he considered his actual face and his actual body. And so this is a situation where in some ways they're very much both right. Kitty is right in that there is something that is not Doug that looks like Doug. And that has in a lot of ways, and, and that Doug's form is in this case appropriated. The difference is that it's not really Doug Locke who did that appropriating. As far as Doug knows, this is just what he, or Doug Locke knows, this is just what he looks like. This is just who he is. This is his name. At the same time, I mean, that would be pretty awkward. So I kind of get Kitty's anger, but still, be nice to robots, Kitty. Be nice to everybody. Well, no, but... You know, within reason. Within reason. So, that reasonably takes us to Excalibur number 81, Beginnings, Middles, and Endings. This is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Chris Cooper, penciled by Paul Abrams and Jose Kleber de Mora Jr., inked by Andrew Pipoy, Keith Champagne, and W.C. Karani, and colored by Chris Mathis. The pencils in this one are interesting because those two artists, Paul Abrams and Jose Kleber de Mora Jr., they have very different styles, and I'm not actually sure which is which. Um, I'm not super familiar with either. But one style is very simple and cartoony, and the other is more realistic and expressive and looks at least partially photo-referenced. And that latter style? I actually really like it for this issue. I really like the inks, but again, with three inkers, who knows whose inks those are? Likewise and likewise. I'll also point out that both of those styles vary pretty significantly in quality and in detail between inkers. So the result is a very, very inconsistent feeling issue with some very, very good moments and some really iffy moments and a lot that falls in between. That said, as can often be the case, uh, having a single colorist here, Chris Mathis, really does draw it together a lot more than it could have been. Like, it's kind of only jarring if you're looking closely at it. If you're just sort of breezing through the art, maybe you wouldn't even notice. I mean, as a kid, I didn't really. I didn't pay attention to stuff like that. So we're following three different sets of characters, three different storylines in this issue. Where do you want to start? Let's start with Britannic and Megan as uh, the characters most influenced by those colors because, God, they're, they're, they're outfits. They're so bright. They're like a Christmas decoration when they hang out with each other between Britannic's red and Megan's green. They really are, and as a result of that, the line art that goes with those colors really, really significantly impacts how relatively silly it looks. Now, Britannic is just coming back from a long period of time lost in the time stream when he gained a somewhat maddening, in-depth view of the time streams and the multiverse, as well as the requisite time traveler mullet. And here he's trying his best to convey that experience to someone who's never really had a comparable frame of reference, as most people haven't. A billion years from now. I saw a new planet harbor the first stirrings of life. I blinked, and intelligent beings evolved, built a civilization before I opened my eyes again. That made me afraid of what I would miss if I closed my eyes at all. So I saw everything that happened next, when their son died. Now, after an eternity of that, he was forever changed and in an instrument of whatever force was behind it all, and he decided that he needed a new name, that he could no longer really be Captain Britain. And up to this point, I follow this like, that makes sense. Yes, this is a rebirth. I'm really distressed and somewhat baffled, and I feel like it really, really um, limits the drama of that, that the name he chose was Britannic. I mean, it's kind of a word that means different stuff if you spell it differently. I guess i i the the only direct allusion i can think of is maybe to the encyclopedia but it's it's just a silly name 
yeah, well, I mean, we're we're very much Americans. Maybe we're missing out on some important British cultural touchstone here. I strongly suspect we are. But I gotta say, this is how you make a character like Britannic interesting. I mean, we've complained a lot about Britannic basically since he was introduced, and I'm sure a lot of that is just sour phoenix grapes because we lost Rachel Summers to get him back. But he hasn't really had much of an much of a voice other than being big dumb guy who yells things a lot and refuses to eat inanimate objects. But now we're starting to understand, like, why he has that sort of off-kilter perspective, why he has that frustration built in, that immense power that he doesn't know how to direct. I really like that we're at least getting some exploration of that, finally. This really feels like the first time he's had motivation and personality, not just behavior in the comics. And that's it's it's a really, really good addition. As you said, it really kind of makes him feel like a more consistent character, makes him feel like more like a member of the team, and makes him much, much more interesting. And I think it's wise having him talk to Megan about this because she's in many ways the person who knows him best. And certainly of the people who know him well, she's the one that has the greatest chance of getting it. I mean, her experiences, her environments change her in a very literal, physical way. So this isn't entirely a foreign concept, even if the whole time stream thing isn't something she's messed around in much. I mean, aside from the cross-time caper, but that was less time and more dimensions, even though they called it cross-time. It was a thing. So... There's something that really interests me about this issue and that leaves me wondering a lot about when it was drawn, when it was originally written, and when it was scripted, and whether it's actually a combination of two stories kind of spliced together. And the reason for that is that there's some setting inconsistency that really shook me um, because Megan and Brian end up talking somewhere that doesn't exist anymore. They're on top of the Excalibur lighthouse. Yeah, that got blown up, like, very thoroughly, like, across the entire multiverse in Excalibur number 50. I mean, it was a whole thing. It was the multiversal nexus that Merlin was using to do nefarious stuff, and Excalibur blew it up. It seems to me, though, that this is just straight up an error, simply because the conversation that's being had, which does have some visual components, so it couldn't just be reused art, the fact that Brian is now Britannic and Megan is now in her weird, like, super spiritual elfy form, that is all stuff that very specifically happened after Alan Davis's run. And his run went on for, like, more than a dozen issues after the Excalibur Lighthouse was destroyed, so... I think somebody just messed up. I think somebody, I guess maybe Scott Lobdell or whoever passed the uh, plot information along to the artists, just sort of forgot that Excalibur didn't just mosey away from their lighthouse, that in fact the lighthouse was multiversal rubble. That could be, but at the same time, both of the things you just described are changes that could conceivably take place at the ink stage. Okay, that's that's possible as well. But I guess my whole point is, I think somebody messed up pretty thoroughly, because that was a big plot point. Yeah, regardless, it feels like a scramble and some rationalization happening around this. Mm -hmm. So Britannic explains how, even though it seems like all of his knowledge would be useful, it actually doesn't help him at all because human existence is just so minuscule compared to the vastness of the time stream. And he's seen everything, so he could never predict, predict anything as minute as an individual's life and death or even the life and death of a world. One of the things that I really dig about how Brian's shift in perspective is portrayed, and this is this is less about scale and more about about um, sequence, but often when you've got a time traveler, they'll remember things as having happened that haven't yet. Brian does the reverse. He mentions that he thinks that some things are going to happen at some point in the future that Megan points out have actually already happened. Brian is just having trouble with with that order just because he's seen it on such a grand scale. Yeah, and again, this is actually an interesting concept. This is the first time Britannic has been interesting. The first time he hasn't just been the tick but red and boring. Not even the tick. He's, he's so much less fun than the tick. Yeah, hence the boring. But... Brian continues describing his, the uselessness of his time-o-vision, saying it would be like counting the rocks on this shore. And Megan says, well, there are 20,097, and she doesn't need to count them, and I think that's relevant, too. She's she's a super elemental. They're, they're just part of her intrinsic awareness. This issue does a really good job of playing Megan and Brian up as parallels, as two people who experience the universe and the world around them in ways very, very different from the way that anyone else does. 
and who may not be able to relate exactly to each other's versions, but who at least can relate to that uniqueness. And I think that's especially the case because Megan just went through her own severe transformation when Brian disappeared and came back. Like, this is not the Megan we know. And I mean, honestly, it's a Megan I, I, I like less. But again, this is a bit of redemption for this new character. Like, she's just become something else. She now has this elemental connection to the world way beyond anything she ever had before. And she was already pretty damn powerful. So... Yeah, having them be the two people that nobody understands, that nobody can understand, having them still be in love and playing in the ocean, even with all this, like, time stream, grand, divine stuff going on, that works. And linking Brian's return and Megan's transformation to the love that brought them back together, I kind of like that. Although it wasn't just that, it was also Rachel Summers' freaking sacrifice. Show some respect, people. I mean, come on, Brian, you even took her costume color, girl. Although she did that part of out of deference to and compassion to their relationship and the impact that Brian's absence was having on Megan. So you can make a sort of long, convoluted argument that it was still their love. But yeah, no, Rachel is better. Oh, yeah. But yeah, that's Britannic and Megan in this issue. This is, uh, as I'm sure everyone's already gathered, one of those quiet sort of plot cleanup uh, contemplative issues. And this is a good use for one of the segments in it. Let's take the characters that have been most ill-served by the last many, many issues and actually see what kind of makes them tick. Yeah, it's 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 a nice bit. And this is this is actually one of a pair. The other issue we're going to be looking at today is an annual and it's got a lot of the same kind of 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 just sort of gently tying off or following previous loose threads sense that this does. Well, one of those threads is at least partially techno organic. So let's see what Shadowcat and Douglock have been up to. So in a pub, Kitty is still trying to convince Douglock that he's got some of Doug's memories, that he must actually be Doug or Warlock or both. There's a moment, and this is this is one of those moments that for me is kind of um, illustrative of, of the art inconsistency, where she holds up a, f- a photo and, and says something like, you know, do you recognize this? And the thing is, this is one of the worst pages of art in the issue. And my first thought was... Well, no, because who would recognize them drawn like that? That said, I did appreciate that the Sam Guthrie in that picture looks a lot like the Sam we saw way, way, way back in the day in New Mutants, even before Bill Sienkiewicz took over. Like that sort of gawky, long-headed, big-eared kid. The Bob McLeod Sam Guthrie. Uh, Yeah, but I think the uh, issues that were between McLeod and Sienkiewicz sort of followed the same feel. Yeah, yeah, for sure, but it's definitely building off on Cloud's design. And so Douglock uh, is confused. He's like, well, if you're asking me this question, where's the music? He's talking about Jeopardy. And honestly, I know at this point probably nobody intended Douglock to really be Warlock, but this could totally be read as a clue because Warlock was obsessed with pop culture and television. It could, for sure. It's also something we're starting to see in Douglock that was – that for me actually reads as a much more cipher-derived characteristic, which is that Douglock is extremely frustrated and sarcasm is a is a go-to response to that. Like in this in this issue, in this story in general, I read him as as handling things much less literally than Warlock. There's a, a whole bit we're gonna get to where it's perennially uncertain whether he genuinely misinterprets a situation or he's just playing a very long deadpan gag. In, in the dialogue. And that ambiguity is something I appreciate because it, as, as you mentioned with the Jeopardy bit, it, it roots him in some kind of fundamental character traits of Doug and Warlock while differentiating him from either of them. Yeah. And especially when Kitty's like, no, you've got to look within yourself. It's got to be in there somewhere. And he has this look of painful intensity and is making all these noises of pain and then says, hey, is that what you wanted? Was that a, a suitable uh, show of effort? And she basically just says, dude, fuck this, and phases out, presumably leaving him with the bill, which is rude because I doubt he understands things like money, Uh, and she's gone. And on her way out, she actually runs into these douche bros beating up a homeless lady and snarkily takes her anger out on them, kicking the crap out of them and knocking one dude out cold while his buddies run away. And then sits down on him to, to think things through. I gotta say, I'm hard team Douglock on this, and some of it is that while I get what Kitty is doing, I think a degree of identification with Douglock and antipathy towards Kitty is going to be common to anyone who's had the experience of 
being told that their experiences aren't real because their facial expressions or tone of voice don't reflect them in ways that the other person anticipates. I could definitely see that parallel, yeah. And that's interesting because Kitty is definitely the character that I, I myself empathize more with there. So yeah, that, that's fascinating. Doug manages to, uh, I don't know, I guess wash some dishes to pay off the bill and then get outside and meets up with Kitty and sits down with her on top of the unconscious dude, which is a gag that I really, really appreciate. And He does bring it up at the end. He asks if such conversations are, are commonly had on, on top of unconscious persons. And again, it's never quite certain whether he's joking, and I really like that. But yeah, he says, hey, I've figured out who the people in the photo are. Like, that's that's Sam Guthrie, and that's Doug Ramsey, and that's Rain Sinclair, and that's you. And he says he's been thinking, and he kind of wants what's in that picture. You know, he was with the phalanx. He was one of this hive mind for a while. And then even after he didn't have that that home, that comfort, he at least had Zero, who was like him. And now he's kind of got nobody. Well, and he's being offered this thing on the condition that he accepted as someone else, which is a really hard position to be in. And on top of that, he's doubting whether he should even be having these feelings because he's used to living in a world of zeros and ones, a world of logic. Forgive me, I should not waste time with such vague notions. None of this makes sense empirically. But Kitty says she has a proposition for him. Very well, I am capable of simulating human male responses. To stay, to learn more about himself with the team. So you want this simulation to involve the entire team? And the gag keeps going, where Douglock's like, okay, so we're all gonna fuck? I mean, is that how humans do friendship? Like, uh, alright, I guess I'm open to it. Well, Kitty keeps on clearly saying things that she insinuate correct him, and he again keeps on, on playing it straight and being like, well, I do have, you know, I do have extensive computing capabilities. I can probably figure out some logistical, you know, arrangements if if necessary. And and ultimately, they they sort of resolve that. Well, they're gonna try to figure out, you know, how to get along. Whether whether it's actually going to involve an orgy is is left at least implicitly unresolved. Okay, so we had two theories about how Doug Lock's interacting with Kitty here. Theory one is that he's just being very literal and doesn't get it. Theory two is that he's fucking with her. I'm going to propose a theory three, which is that Doug Lock is entirely motivated by horniness. And really, he's just doing every angle he can to be like, or we could bone. I mean, maybe I'm just being overly literal. Maybe I'm just fucking with you. But I'm just saying. Hard disagree. And I would I would propose my 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 theory to my fucking with Kitty is more Douglock is playing out a recognizable gag because he thinks it's funny or for his own entertainment. I suppose that's more likely. But that's that. And Douglock is actually gonna be a member of the team. I guess this is where he officially becomes a member of the team until the end of the entire series of this volume of Excalibur, which is quite a ways away. The question of who he is is going to continue on for a pretty long time, too. And I got to say, there's something that I want to talk about here. I don't, I'm not going to go into details, but there's a specific scene that I I know happened and I kept on expecting to happen in one of the two Douglock stories we're looking at today, or Douglock and Kitty stories specifically, and didn't. And I can't remember exactly when it happens, and it's starting to worry me. I mean, maybe maybe it's from an alternate universe. Maybe you got moved to Earth, you know, 1280 or whatever when you were from 1279 and you're misremembering things. It's like how everyone remembers Dr. Pepper as being owned by a different company. No, it's definitely a thing that happened. And Matt, I'm going to tell Miles this, but if you could just sort of cut the bit where I actually say it so it's not in the episode, that would be great. Oh, oh yeah, that. That was a good part. I mean, dark, but good. Emotional beat of Damocles. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, pretty much that. But of course, it's not just these characters we're going to explore because this is a cleanup issue and an, an issue of Excalibur would be incomplete unless it checked in with Professor Xavier and Moira McTaggart. They are now a central part of this book. And... We would say that they're a central part of this book because they're on Muir Island, but they're not actually on Muir Island right now. Xavier has spirited Moira to Paris for a surprise for a brief weekend away. Moira, back in the day, said she always wanted the two of them to go here again before she died, and, well, huh, that. But she objects. She's like, Professor Xavier, or Charles, or Chucky, or 
Chuck X, or I don't know what she calls him. I'm sure she has a pet name for him. We have work to do. Why are we fucking around in Paris? And he says, dude, our work is critical, but we need a break. We're going to make mistakes otherwise. We're not going to be operating at peak efficiency. We need to actually just be human. And I really appreciate that Xavier, the one that is always put together, who's always like, no, the dream comes first. Compared to Moira, he's the one that takes a step back. He's the one that has to remind her to be a person. I feel like Xavier is also the one who would pragmatically look at the fact that I, I, you can probably put this better than I because you've got more grounding in neuropsych, but the specific um, cost-benefit trade-off of, of work marathons. Yeah, and I'm sure he's well aware of that because, as we know, he was a scientist in the Silver Age, so he's an expert in basically every field. Oh, yeah, you know, he's he's a doctor of all the things. Um, but I, I actually, I want to go into that a little bit because I just, it's it's one of those things that's important that I feel like is is relevant and good to bring up on a fairly regular basis when you're talking to an audience in in 2019 because it's relevant to all of our lives most of the time which is basically and and in context of things like video video game crunch there's a point at which working overtime impacts your overall productivity so substantially that it effectively undercuts any benefit you might get from the extra hours oh absolutely i know there's been a lot of work done into uh like what the work week should be how many hours it should be and from what little i've read i mean just skimming you know abstracts and stuff uh it sounds like a lot of research is showing that a 35 hour work week or thereabouts or just a four day work week would make a whole lot more sense that you don't actually lose productivity because those extra hours just drag you down enough that you're not as productive as you otherwise might be yeah, I've heard 35. I've also heard um, systems with, with six-hour days, even if it's it's more six-hour days. Or basically, the point is um, the the idea of working crunch time into video game schedules is a really bad idea if you do it, do it for more than about a week. Legit. Uh, or legacy virus research. And, you know, you talked about him being, being Xavier being all, all flirty. And, and I got to say, I know we talked about this last time, and I think I'm probably going to keep bringing it up till Mara dies. I love their dynamic in this era. God, I do too. Like, honestly, they bring out the best in each other. And, you know, yeah, they're, they're exes. They haven't been in a romantic relationship in a long time, and a lot has happened since then. But that sense of shared history, that sense of playfulness, like, you almost get the feel that because they spent so much time estranged, when they're together, they're almost their younger selves. They're more idealistic, more energetic selves. Well, and they're old enough and have, have gone through enough time and have enough frame of reference to recognize that their best and most comfortable dynamic isn't romantic. You know, you said even though they're not romantic. And I think in this case, we're talking about two characters who were like briefly, intensely in love, but whose friendship actually covers a much, much longer and much more recent period of time and is much more the place where they've settled. Mm -hmm. So Xavier has planned this whole thing out. He's made super fancy restaurant reservations, but Moira's in her lab outfit. He forgot about that. So he slightly abuses his powers to make her look like someone fancy to the maitre d', specifically Princess Diana. Ecstatics couldn't get away with that many years later, but uh, that was kind of a different story. Yeah, as I recall, Ecstatics was specifically trying to have a character be dead resurrected Princess Diana, who was still alive at the point when this issue came out. Right. Um, God, that Ecstatic story. I mean, it ended up different weird, but I can only imagine what it would have been like if it had gone there. Peter Milligan and Mike Allred sure did a thing with that book. Like, we don't talk about Ecstatics very much or the X-Force run that led up to it, but that book is bonkers. And I, I, I like it overall, but a lot of it, I just do not know what to make of it. Well, I was going to say, we don't talk about it a lot yet. We'll get there. Yeah. So anyway, while they're in the restaurant, Xavier also telepathically notices that the waiter is totally hot for Moira because Moira's a total hottie. And he mentions, oh, sorry, shit. I guess I'm less con in control of my telepathy when I'm tipsy. And that's a very humanizing detail. Like, he's like, oh, shit. Oops. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, world. Sorry, ethics. Like, He's letting go for once, and we're seeing that Xavier that's not just such a controlled hard-ass. I mean, yeah, I guess he fucked up a little based on the way ethics work in the Marvel Universe around telepathy, but I love that. Yeah, the the specific ways in which the two of them get to let to go let go around each other are much more about being people in a much fuller range of personhood than either of them really gets to in their professional or primary social relationships and capacities. And partially because of that, Moira does recognize that, hey, this is a finite period 
of time. Xavier mentions that every time he sees her, it's like the first time as they're sort of joke flirting, and it'll be that way forever. And um, they 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 sort of fall into a really deep kiss and then break apart, just laughing really hard. It's delightful. Yeah, and they they determine that you know that's just not where they are now. But as Moira says, "Come what may, there's a place in our hearts where we're still in love, and that's the way it will be." forever. Life is different now. They're different people, but the past happened and their past happened and that makes them who they are. And that has become sort of a touchstone for them in this fucked up world. It reminds me of, I I recall there being a language and I'm not certain enough in my memory of it to say which, but wherein there's not exactly a past tense and things that happened in the past are described as being, as happening in the present with a qualifier that means in memory. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I vaguely remember that from college anthropology, but that was a really long time ago. So uh, yeah, details are all gone. Anyway, if if, if we both remember that accurately, cool. <laughs> and if not, then we're spreading disinformation through this podcast. Either way, we're on to Excalibur Annual Number Two, um, which is has has again is actually again broken up into sort of three subplots. The difference here is that they are three entirely capsuled short stories. So this is actually the last Excalibur Annual, which is strange to me because its annuals used to be those super impressive prestige format books that were always an event when they came out. You know, like Mojo Mayhem and The Sword Is Drawn. Well, they didn't call them annuals back then. That's clearly what the factor in their their gradual decay has been. You know, taking them from special editions to annuals. Ugh, annuals. How common. How jejun. That's, uh, we got number one with chaos, which was delightful, and now we get this one, which is sort of some more tying up of plot threads, some more housekeeping, and kind of mixed, but overall, I think pretty good. Yeah, I'm not going to say that it's quiet, because there are a lot of, you know, fights and yelling, but not all that much that's significant actually happens. The cover actually tries to play it up a little bit more than is perhaps warranted. It's got a big blurb in the corner that says, featuring the X-Men and Psylocke. Well, I mean, it's featuring Psylocke, who is an X-Man, so I guess there's that. There, there. It might feature some brief memories or of our flashbacks to the X-Men, and and I guess there's a character who's technically an X-Men villain who's in it, who last appeared in an X-Men issue? Yeah, but, uh, you know, honestly, m- comics have a history of doing that. Like, hey, let's have the cover of this book that doesn't sell quite as well mention a bunch of characters who do sell really well. All right, so we're going to start with, of course, that that amazing issue mover. You know, one of the most famous and popular characters in the Marvel Universe, Jamie Braddock. This is a story called The Interpretation of Dreams. It is written by Richard Ashford, penciled by John Royal, inked by Phil Moy, Bill Anderson, and W.C. Karani, and colored by Ariane. Now, we last saw reality warper Jamie Braddock back in Excalibur 56, and at that point, Satire 9 escaped from Braddock Manor with his comatose body. Now he's at Muir Isle, so apparently she ditched him at some point, and I'd really like to think that she left him propped up on a park bench in sunglasses, because that really seems like her style. Oh god, it totally does. And now I'm just imagining a Weekend at Bernie-style thing, but with Jamie Braddock, and oh, that just gets dark and weird immediately. That's That's bizarrely easy to imagine, though, isn't it? It totally is. It's something about those little earrings he has. They just make everything funnier, even when he's doing terrible, terrible things. I I guess. Anyway, uh, Psylocke is also on Muir Isle, and she is here because she got a telepathic sibling distress call. She assumed it was from Ryan, and he, he says that no, no, he's doing fine, but he did recently have a dream about saving the world back to back with Jamie in the far flung future year of 2040. And the declarative pulp hero patriotic narration here actually really works for Britannic because that's kind of how he interacts with the world. Like, we've been kind of down on Richard Ashford's writing in the past when he's done Excalibur fill-ins, but I think this is one of his better examples, and I think part of that is because Psylocke and Britannic and Jamie are all characters who are kind of a little elevated, you know, above reality. They're all over the top to some level. And I think that actually works decently well with Ashford's writing style. Now, what what's less impressive or, or maybe as maybe more impressive, but but perhaps less elegant is far future Jamie's look, which I want to discuss because he's got like 
18-inch-long forearm blades just sticking out sideways from his arms. Do you think he just stabs himself all the time when he tries to put his arms down? Uh, If he does, he can just rewrite reality so he didn't. Honestly, it almost looks like he looked at Strife and he looked at Death's Head from Marvel UK and he was like, Oh, they're boring. How can I make these worse? Maybe he was hanging out with that Shi'ar emissary guy from the beginning of X-Men Unlimited number five. Do you remember him? Distinctly. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole look. Now, the nature of this dream, Brian's talking about how he's pretty sure it's an actual vision of the actual future, even though he just said he doesn't really get those specifics. Eh, whatever, it's fine. And so, therefore, it's really important that Jamie be fixed up, that he be decomed so that he and Brian can wear improbable things and save the world in the far future era of 2040. And more importantly, get along well enough to save the world together. So Brian and and Betsy decide that they're going to go on an odyssey through Jamie's mind because that never ends badly. And Moira McTaggart, who of course is present at least over the intercom, has a theory that could be straight out of psychology today, which is that they just have to find the formative experience in Jamie's past where things went bad. And if they can resolve that, he'll be totally fine and he won't be evil anymore and he won't try to destroy the world and stuff like that. I like the idea that she's she's pausing to intercom with them about this in, from Paris that they, they called and she's like, oh, just a minute, I have to take this. It's more Braddock bullshit. <laughs> right. So, I don't know. I mean, it's an appealing concept. Like, think about a world where whenever anybody was having a hard time psychologically, you could just find the one magic experience and talk through it and then everything would be fine. But, you know, that's that's not the world. That's not how people work. People are way more complicated. And trauma and mental illness and any number of experiences, those stick with you. You can't just flip a light switch. And the thing that they they choose, that they go with, is something that really pisses me off. Basically, Jamie became a supervillain, did a bunch of murders, warped reality, and variously tortured his siblings, including in their childhoods, by the way, including, like, before this formative experience, because he just felt kind of left out. Because the twins didn't proactively enough include someone who was harassing and torturing them at the time. Yeah, it's it's weird, and we do at least get some more ambiguity about it at the end, but at the beginning of the story, it does seem, like, painfully reductive. This is some Joker movie incel bullshit. Oh, yeah, kind of. But as far as how it's portrayed, I mean, it's kind of the usual thing with Jamie Braddock as they go through his mind. It's that reality warping stuff. They go through his mind. He, at various points, takes control of them and of the scene and of hallucinations. The only really important detail, the only really, really critical takeaway, I think, here is that Child Elizabeth's favorite plush bunny was named Pooh, not P-O-O-H like the bear, but just P-O-O. Yeah, Mr. Pooh or Pooh Rabbit. Betsy, you're a smart girl. You could have named that rabbit literally anything else. It is a very kid thing to name something. I, I guess that's true. And man, kid Brian and Betsy are like stupidly adorable. This actually kind of reminds me of the flashbacks from way back in the day when Betsy had that initial body transformation with the hand and Matsuo and stuff, like where she was going through her own past, getting the Mandarin's 10 rings and interacting with Brian and Jamie. It's a similar pastoral feel, you know, like the whole idyllic British childhood that may or may not actually have, have been a thing. Mopping around. Anyway, they are able to change Jamie's memory enough such that when he, while he's still comatose, he's now happily comatose because he's dreaming of being a kid and being invited to come hang out and play with Betsy and Brian. So the story, I go back and forth on it, but one thing I do like, just like the last story, is that we get to know Britannic a little bit more, specifically Britannic as he is now. And part of how is we get to have him interacting with something that is very specifically from Brian's past, pre-Britannic mind scrunchingness. And I think having that sense of continuity and seeing how Britannic still has those family connections, even though he's now this very declarative, big picture, following the divine kind of guy, that humanizes him in a way that feels necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think something that's important is that it's not that Britannic has ceased to be Brian. He's what Brian has grown into. And you talked in in the preceding issue about 
the parallels between Brian and Megan. And I think the parallels between Brian and Betsy are something I wish had been explored further in this story. Because we've seen some of that in context of just talking about Betsy. We've seen some of her and Brian talking post-body swap about sort of the complicatedness of their relationship and being twins with their very, very different experiences. And now the fact that they're not biologically related anymore. Um, But that's something I would have liked to have seen alluded to and interacted with a little bit more here, how much Betsy's own experiences and powers and identity have been shaken up over the last few years. Yeah, that would have been really cool. I agree. But one thing I like about this story is that, you know, they keep going back to the explanation of, oh, Jamie was just lonely, so he turned into a horrible, like, serial killer, slave trader, reality warper person. But as it goes on, both Betsy and Brian call Jamie on that, saying, hey, it almost seems like you were sad as a kid and you're blaming everything you did on that. But really, this was you, bro. These were like your flaws where you just always wanted the easy way out and you never wanted to take responsibility. That's something that I really appreciate and a narrative that the issue back and forth tries to subvert and then kind of unsubverts and then kind of resubverts. The fact that it is discussed explicitly is, I think, important because, yeah, plenty of lonely people don't do that stuff. Um, the fact that what resolves things is leaving him with that memory changed is, is I think, unfortunate and goes some way to undoing those revelations. Yeah, but I like that it's not a quick fix. I like that it doesn't work, basically, because this is a story about what to do when people disappoint you, when you want them to be better than they are. Like, you can come up with reasons and quick fixes and explanations for, let's just fix this one thing and it'll be fine, and those don't always work, and then you're just left with that gray space sometimes. Yeah, and and Jamie continues to be thoroughly villainous in his subsequent appearances. Although we're not going to see him again until 2004 in one of Claremont's returns to Uncanny X-Men. So apparently the whole thing where he's got a little bit heavier brain activity after this, after what they did, uh, it still takes quite a while to go anywhere. Yeah, but he's going to make a play to take over Otherworld at that point, so I feel like he's kind of saving up for it. Okay, he's charging up his attack like in Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, honestly, I think it's best that he's taken off the board for a while. Jamie is an extremely, extremely neat character, and he's a terrifying, terrifying antagonist. But he works best and is most interesting in very small doses used very, very carefully. Agreed. Well, let's move on to other villains that maybe work best in small doses. In the next story in the annual, Black Queen Rising. Oh man, I think this is the weakest story of the three, and... I'm saying that significantly because Selena's at the center of it and there's just not much there. Um, but also I, I just there it's it's got a lot of holes. Um and and a lot of a lot of holes and a lot of sort of tears in the narrative, and I'm I'm entirely playing with this on purpose. I'm sorry, I'm being a dick. <laughs> um this is written by Eric Fine, penciled by Derek Gross, inked by Bob um Vicek, Terry Austin, Bill Anderson, and Andrew Papoy, and colored by Monica Bennett. Now, you need a little bit of background here. Celine is the former Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. She is, I believe, technically an external, so she's immortal. She's very, very powerful. She started out in X-Men, I think, as a New Mutants antagonist. And she has spent a very long time, since Uncanny X-Men 301, in a spooling chamber. It's basically a thing that shreds and reassembles her body over and over and over again that Fitzroy threw her into to attract Game Master's attention during the Upstarts arc, which we're not going to discuss now and which you don't need to know about to understand this story or, in fact, most of X-Men. And if you do understand, you may want to just forget because, honestly... Those are brain cells you could be using for other things. I'm thinking about uh, role-playing Call of Cthulhu and having to roll to uh, forget certain things so you uh, go less mad. See, this isn't so much about going mad as just sort of... I don't know. I mean, if you genuinely enjoy and find a lot of meaning in the Upstart storyline, more power to you and go ahead. Um, For me, it just kind of feels like that's something that's there when something else could have been. (laughs) There is that. So I almost wonder if this story mostly happened because spooling was such a memorable visual image, like, you know, having a character be in this chamber and have their flesh come off in strips, which was such a thing for about a year there, that they're just like, hey, let's let's do that again. Let's do that with Amanda Sefton, Day Tripper. So Amanda's day job is that she is a flight attendant. 
And mid-flight, she has a waking dream that she is, in fact, in a spooling chamber. And then has has that then the plane goes into a nosedive, and Celine shows up in Amanda's head and says, Yeah, so I sent you that dream, and I'm also screwing up the plane, and unless you teleport out and help me right now, I'll crash it. So and Amanda's like, okay, fine, I guess that's what I'm doing, huh? So two things here. One I've been traveling a lot lately. I got to say the airplane in here, like, yes, I know it's going into a nosedive and it's about to crash, but it looks so spacious and comfortable. I wish 2019 planes were like that and, you know, weren't sent into nosedives by evil, possibly Roman sorceresses. Well, that was the cost of that more comfortable air travel um, in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. You know, it's all a trade off. That makes sense. Uh, And thing two, this story really seems to fall into the Excalibur is the leftovers book trope. Because, I mean, I guess Day Tripper is the only currently magic-related X character, so it makes some sense that Selene would reach out to her. But Selene is also at least somewhat psychic, so she could have easily reached out to any of the telepathic characters in any of the books. So it's weird that it's in an Excalibur annual. I mean, I guess it does show that Excalibur is very much a part of the X umbrella at this point in time. I Yeah, and Amanda isn't that recognizable a character. And usually when you've got a character like this and you're putting them in an annual, you're putting them in an annual for more of a window onto that specific character. And that's not really what this is. She's just sort of there. And I wonder if Celine reached out to her, not because of the Excalibur thing, not because of the mutant team attachment, but because she's the mystical character who's got enough power to get Celine out, perhaps, but not enough history with Celine to understand why it's an absolutely terrible idea. Well, Amanda does try to just shut down the spooling machine without letting Celine out, but it doesn't work. Yeah, so she eventually shuts it down, lets Celine out. Celine clearly, Celine, Celine chuckles and, and like super villain monologues as the machine's turning off. So clearly she's got a double agenda here, but whatever was going to happen is interrupted by Nightcrawler just randomly showing up because he was going to meet Amanda at the airport and she wasn't with the flight. And somehow he worked out, he, he was able to trace her coordinates here somehow in Ways that are never explored. He's just sort of there. And Celine gets out and then throws him into the chamber and turns it back on because apparently it needs to be occupied or the place will self-destruct. Why does Celine care about that? It's like Fitzroy's old house and Fitzroy's a dick. And I guess the house is kind of nice, but she has a lot of nice houses. Yeah, I got nothing there. Well, anyway. Anyway, Amanda is able to throw Selene around using the power of love um, and get Kurt out, but he can't teleport because there are power dampeners, and now they'll definitely die, even though there's a pretty long countdown, but they're able to combine their powers and teleport out before the house explodes, while in a nearby swamp, Selene discovers that her wounds from the spooling chamber have reopened and aren't healing. And there's a very um, EC homage-looking last page of her in her tattered clothing, which never got fully shredded, but was tattered by the spooling chamber, which again is a weird detail. The spooling chamber also shreds and heals her clothing. I mean, it is technology from the future. The future has peculiar priorities. Well said. Um. Anyway, her wounds have reopened and they're not really healing, and we are left with that moment of horror before going into the final story, A Change of Worlds, written by Kim Yale, with a plot assist from Jay Gardner, penciled by Hannibal King and Yancey Labatt, which are two terrific names, inked by Jason Minor, Keith Champagne, and W.C. Karani, and colored by Chris Mathis. Wait, Hannibal King? As in the vampire detective who was played by Ryan Reynolds in Blade Trinity and used to show up in Tomb of Dracula a lot? Yes. Oh, well, uh... Apparently, he's not just a vampire detective, he's also a pretty good penciler, so, uh, nice work, Hannibal. I suspect that one of th- one of the two is named after the other, although in which order I'm not sure whether Hannibal King is is the namesake of the, the characters or whether um, it's a pseudonym that was, was pulled from those characters. Maybe Hannibal King is very young and their parents just really liked Tomb of Dracula. So... As Warren Ellis will soon forget, but as you may remember, Kitty Pride is a teenager, and um, as such, her mom just does not understand. And one of the ways in which her mom just does not understand is she thinks it would be cool to send Kitty a quote-unquote surprise that turns out to just be a bunch of old floppy disks from her days at the Xavier School, which through this issue are consistently spelled disks with a C, and I am irrationally incensed by that. 
I mean, so the reason that floppy disks uh, were spelled with a K is because they're short for diskette, but they do have a disk with a C inside them. So uh, maybe Kitty's mom is just really good at computer science and hates the fact that they're uh, obfuscating the true contents of a disk. I feel like they should have been spelled D-I-S-Q-U-E-T-T-E, like briquette. Would have been cooler. I would just pronounce them disquette because it's fun to say. But then we could just spell it D-I-S-Q, which again, fundamentally cooler. Legit. Now, among the discs, Kitty discovers something that's not actually something she made. It wasn't originally hers. It's something of Doug's that got mixed into her old stuff. It's basically a diary of, or a series of, of letters to someone he hopes will be her. It, I get the impression that he's kind of using using the idea that Kitty will imagine it, will will eventually maybe be reading it as a way to just structure his diary, um, but about major turning points during his time in the New Mutants, and it's basically a Doug's eye view of a few really major events from that series. And we get, with each diary entry, uh, an image of, you know, what is being discussed there. And they're very candid shots, and some of them are, like, in the middle of fights. Like, one of them is Doug getting shot and dying. And you sort of have to wonder how they got there. I choose to assume it's not literal. It's just a conceit that we, the comics readers, are being shown that. It actually really reminds me of the Jubilee and Jean story, where Jubilee reads Jean's diary in the X-Men wedding special. Yeah, I can see that. Um, the only way I've been think of to I, I can think of to explain the images actually being there is if Doug is using some kind of specific debriefing software that cross references and pulls the dated images from where he happened to be at that time. I mean, these are three point five inch discs. Uh, I don't think you could really fit that much on there. Yeah, but they're three point five inch discs that are clearly compatible with hardcore Shi'ar technology. I mean, Shi'ar still have floppy drives. Who do you think they are, Apple? Anyway, as a result, we get a Doug's eye view of some of the bigger stuff that happens in New Mutants. So, for example, the first time he merges with Warlock in Asgard, returning home and having Magneto take over the school and then hard sideline Doug and prevent him from going into combat with the other kids. And the continuity research here is admirable. Like, when Doug is complaining about getting back to Earth and having Magneto be a jerk, he's like, I should have stayed in the Mead Hall of Harold Einerson. At least that way I wouldn't have to deal with Magneto. It's like, whoa, you remembered Harold Einerson? You remembered the jerk noble that Doug served for, like, three pages back in the Asgardian Wars? Well done, writer. Um, also, the f- when he fought and bested Magus while merged with Warlock, the first time that Doug's skills really got the ex- the New Mutants a major victory, in which his actions were also instrumental. Um, and then Warlock disappearing to Fallen Angels, leaving Doug feeling useless, lost, and really alone. And I love Doug's voice in all these entries. Like, this is a character who back in the day, he was so self-aware and saw others so clearly, but that often just led to as much frustration as optimism. Doug was smart, and Doug was written as a character who was smart. Not just like, I know science stuff, but like, I see the world with a level of clarity and detail that a lot of people don't, and processing that is really rough sometimes. And that completely comes through in these diary entries. Yeah, this is this is great, and especially the the last one, the one about fallen angels, is something that I feel like was really missing from New Mutants around that storyline. Not seeing the other characters, but in t- particular Doug and Sam's response to, you know, half the team suddenly disappearing. Yeah. So hey, years later, we we get that addressed a little. And after reading all these diary entries and maybe looking at the pictures that might or might not be literally there. Kitty's kind of shaken up, but she's also psyched. Maybe, maybe this will be the set of keys that will let Doug Locke unlock the memories of Doug Ramsey and be Doug Ramsey again, or for the first time, or whatever. But maybe her friend will be back, and I love this little bit of bittersweet narration. Finally, she thinks, someone she's lost will be coming back to her. But Doug Locke does not react the way that Kitty hoped that he would. No, this is wrong. These discs pertain to the deceased human being known as Douglas Ramsey. This is not who I am. I am Douglock. If you are asking me to be who you want me to be, I cannot do that. I'm sorry I cannot help you, Shadowcat. Nightcrawler overheard this whole thing because he's been very concerned, understandably, about his friend, and he 
talks to Kitty, and together they take a look at the final diary entry that Doug left on these discs. This is the entry where Doug wrote about the decision to keep fighting with the New Mutants even without Warlock, even though he was pretty certain that doing so would eventually kill him. With Warlock gone, I can't help but think about what could happen to me. I'm not naive enough to think the New Mutants are unbeatable, that any of us are immune to the dangers we face when we go into battle. But is it too much to ask whoever's running the show for a hero's death? I mean, I don't want to go, but if I have to, that's how I'd like to go. The physical strength and protection Warlock gave me as my partner are gone, but that doesn't mean I'm willing to retire to the sidelines. I know there's a place for me alongside my teammates. If they need me, I'll be there. If necessary, I'll lay down my life for them. Before Danny had ever even heard of the New Mutants, her grandfather told her about brave warriors being granted good medicine deaths. I understand what he meant by that now. Our own wise man, the professor, made us start reading Shakespeare. In one of his plays, he wrote, If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. The readiness is all. After reading this with Kitty, Kurt finally gives her some very, very good advice. I love the extent to which he's sort of become the practical emotional center of not only this team, but kind of a lot of the cores of the X-Men in general. And this time that advice is overheard by Doug Locke. Liebchen, I think you know you must accept Doug Locke. See him for who he is, not for who he is not. You can't hate someone for not being what you expected them to be. The joy of discovering who they are is part of the adventure. He can't be Doug, but he can be your friend, if you let him. Kurt is a good dude. Kurt is. And so here we have two issues, one regular and one annual, where not a lot of big things happen. I mean, okay, Celine gets out, but meh, who cares about Celine? But where we do really get into the heads of a lot of our characters. And I think this book really needed that. I mean, it's been a book that you could certainly accuse of having been treading water for a long time, but it's been treading water mostly in terms of events, not in terms of character psychology. And I think that character psychology has been missing, and it's so nice to get a chance to see that before we dive into the next crossover. Bringing Doug Locke into this book was, I think, a really good move. We've talked a little bit about sort of the what-ifs of if Doug Locke had appeared in other books and I think ultimately what it comes down to is that Kitty is the character who has the most potential to change and develop in concert with Doug Locke. And ultimately, when you make decisions like this, you make decisions ideally based on what's going to best serve stories. And in this case, Excalibur is the answer. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. And I think that's an excellent, excellent point. Because kitty's journey like this does feel like the next step of it in a way that that wouldn't have felt for say wolfsbane or someone else yeah agreed now we are on our own journey and along with us are listeners and some of those listeners have questions jeff asks via email does emma frost age when she's in diamond form so I couldn't find an absolutely conclusive answer to this, but I am under the impression that she ages in diamond form at the same rate as diamond, which is to say so slowly that it's pretty much imperceptible on a human timeline. I'm basing that on a few things, the most significant of which is her alternate timeline daughter, Ruby, um, who manages to survive and to basically stay young well past her normal, if not lifespan, youth by remaining in, in Ruby form for a very long time, but whose human form when she shifts back reflects all of the aging that she didn't do in her stone form. Presumably the same thing would be the case with Emma. But even if Emma does age naturally, you know she's always just going to use her telepathy to make herself look as young and amazing as she wants to everybody around her. Actually, didn't she do that in one of the recent Old Man Logan series? She did. Yeah, specifically in the Secret Wars, Old Man Logan. Yeah, I love that. Like, she looks super amazing, and then she eventually does let down her guard, and she's, like, extra old. And still looks super amazing, because she's Emma Frost. Well, true, but just, you know, a little wrinklier. Let Emma Frost be middle-aged and still spectacular. Mm-hmm. Now, Monica asks, also via email, has there ever been a time when Dazzler was in roller derby? 
Good question and a reasonable one. I mean, as much time as she spent on roller skates back in the day, she's got to be pretty good, right? And in fact, the answer is yes. She was the jammer for a roller derby team in the second volume of A-Force. That's the volume of the all-female Avengers-ish team, but not the one in the Secret Wars alternate universe, the one in the main Marvel universe. She was actually in the middle of a match, I believe, when A-Force recruited her. And she had a really great, like, black mohawk and a sweet derby outfit, and it was super cool, and that series was fun. Now, that wasn't her first interaction with roller derby. Back in 1985, in Dazzler number 35, she actually fought a group of roller derby villains. In retrospect, the issue's pretty cringy. Like, the roller derby team, they're all super stereotypically masculine because I guess how dare women do anything that's like a sport. And so that was pretty weird. Uh, But, you know, going then to A-Force Volume 2, Number 2, where she's portrayed the way she is, uh, we haven't come far in every way we should, but at least there's that. And at least Dazzler got to be on a roller derby team and hit people with her butt a lot. In a more um, meta six degrees of separation way, we also have a very good friend who is a roller derby player and has uh, put, has dressed up as a really fantastic dazzler at a couple of conventions. Shout out to you, Sarah. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Today, the mic solely goes to the angry Claremontian narrator. Michael Hollis. You've tried so hard to fit Hisham Zubi into your limited paradigm that you've ignored the reality that both of you are far less, but perhaps also far more than your limited human perceptions can even begin to grasp. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of additional content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Miles will be on vacation next week, but I'll be here in the studio with Sean and McGuire talking about the X-Men's greatest villains. (laughs) 